This is the African Express podcast service. Brought to you from the Northwestern University Library's vocal booth. Coming to you every weekend from the banks of Lake Michigan in Chicago to the Manu River Basin in West Africa. This podcast is sponsored by Northwestern University's program of African Studies. This podcast is about accountability, gender equality, youth empowerment, climate change, and democracy. Welcome to the Africanist Press African History Series, featuring prominent voices of academics, poets, activists involved in shaping discussions about Africa and its past. Here, we introduce Marcus Garvey, a Jamaican political leader, publisher, journalist, entrepreneur, and orator who is a leading proponent of the African liberation movement. This episode is the third and last part of the documentary created by the Institute of the Black World, 21st Century. The finale tells of Garvey's legacy, spearhead in the works of individuals like Earl and Louise Little, and his second wife, Amy Jakes Garvey, all of whom dedicated themselves to rebuilding the Garvey movement and upholding his philosophy, which inspired the succeeding generation of black activists like Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party. We will also witness the debating impact of J. Edgar Hoover and his counterinsurgency program against the growing black liberation movements in the United States. The African History Series aims to feature voices, institutions, and individuals engaged in the story of Africa's past and present development. Here we honor the work and contributions of Marcus Garvey. For 500 years, there has been a continuous search for identity by people of African descent in the United States, in the Caribbean, and across the world outside of the continent of Africa. Because it's in Africa that we can first find ourselves. It's this deeply held idea that black people would never be a part of the United States uh, or of American society, and therefore should seek a home elsewhere, uh, either in the immediate Western Hemisphere and more importantly, for many, back to Africa. While Garvey popularized the idea of an African homeland for black people, he hardly invented it. Garvey injected his movement with a very strong ideological, you know, uh, focus, and that was the difference. But blacks, from the very beginning of slavery in this country, blacks have attempted to organize very similar, you know, uh, movements. I think you have to go back two centuries to Paul Cuffey, the first, arguably the first black millionaire, uh, perhaps in late 18th and early 19th century terms. Uh, a shipbuilder, a merchant based in Philadelphia, who at the, during the War of 1812 espoused the idea of Africans, new, newly freed African Americans, returning to West Africa. In the early 19th century, African Americans, through the American Colonization Society, established Liberia. And over 20,000 African Americans, newly freed slaves, found their way in a home in West Africa. There were uh, movements uh, to relocate uh, 
African Americans to Latin America, to Liberia, to uh, Central America, any number of places. And I suspect that uh, Garvey, being the uh, voracious reader that he was, probably uh, had read uh, about many of these things. Garvey enlarged the vision of earlier repatriation movements. For Garvey, Africa was not merely a physical place, but the political, cultural, and spiritual embodiment of home for a people who were dispossessed. What Garvey gave the Back to Africa movement was much more of an oppositional, anti-imperialist, anti-colonial uh, movement that did not go begging uh, to the colonialists to make concessions to us, but talked about organizing uh, ourselves, uh, organizing, in, in Garvey's own mind, uh, an African empire. Uh, to redeem Africa. It was a standing up, being independent, we are going to throw the white man uh, out of Africa. Going back to Africa meant first and foremost psychologically and culturally. That is, black people who had been brainwashed to deny their own African identity had to first go back to Africa through their own mentality. By reclaiming Africa and winning Africa in one's own mind, you could achieve political and cultural liberation no matter where you were as a person of African descent. One thing that distinguishes uh, Garveyism from other Pan-African movements that preceded his movement uh, was the large working class base. You know, there was a significant following of ordinary working people, you know, um, people who worked in industrial labor, sharecroppers, not just in the United States but all over the globe. Uh, Garvey himself was a labor organizer and he, his appeal really reached the masses. Earl and Louise Little a young working-class couple were the typical Garveyite family. The Littles were fervent believers in Garvey's ideas and played an active role in the UNIA. Earl Little was from the American South. Louise Little was from Grenada in the West Indies, and she had migrated to Montreal, Canada. They met in Montreal and married. Earl Little was uh, a minister who became involved in the Garvey movement in the early 1920s. He saw in Garvey, um, I think, the combination of a black messianic figure espousing a philosophy, reinforcing um, his idea of the destiny and the future of African American or of people of African descent. Wherever the Littles and their growing family settled, Earl and Louise joined or started chapters of the UNIA. The family gravitated throughout the Midwest, experienced the kind of racial discrimination and intimidation that other black Midwestern families felt, settling in the 1930s in Lansing, Michigan. Louise Little was the secretary of 
the Lansing UNIA. She also wrote the reports of meetings and divisional activities for Garvey's Negro World. If the Littles were, were typical Garveyites, I suppose, in that um, they were ordinary working people who believed in race pride, who believed in race first, you know, organizing around um, the institutions that can benefit black people as a whole. Um, they weren't leaders in, in terms of being national leaders. You know, they weren't the, the kind of race men and women who would fall, who would hang out in, in circles like with the boys and, you know, people like that. But instead, they were very local, committed, uh, you know, believers. Earl Little preached the Garvey movement. His wife, his family, all of those who were connected to him were Garveyites because he was talking about doing for self, eliminating oppression against people of African descent, developing their own churches, their own schools, develop controlling their own community. The white power structure saw this as threatening to the point where he was murdered. But that message was so powerful that it was magnified even in the next generation through his son, Malcolm Little, who ultimately became Minister Malcolm X. Malcolm was infused literally by birth and by experience in terms of going through the, the rites of passage, if you will, as a young adult, and, and, and into being a, a uh, advanced Garveyite, if you will. Marcus Garvey wanted black women to look at themselves in a new way, as beautiful. Because up to the time that Marcus Garvey came into the Harlems of America, black women were, what, domestics, you know, seamstresses, nurses at the bottom of the rung of whatever service line there could be. After you joined the government, you are convinced that you were somebody. It made you feel that you was valuable and you were worthwhile, and that you had something to live for. You had something even to die for if necessary. That's how important it was to be a part of the Garvey movement. That's how I felt, and until today, that's the way I feel. The Garvey movement sought to counter negative images of black women. In contrast to the demeaning stereotypes of black women in American popular culture, in the UNIA, black women were revered and their beauty was celebrated. Garvey idealized women. He had a romantic view of the beautiful black woman, the black goddess, Africa herself as a woman. And he idealized women and he wanted to place them on pedestals in a way of lifting them up from jobs like domestic service into middle class life. He published photographs in his newspaper, The Negro World, showing beautiful black women. He wrote a famous poem, for example, called The Black Woman, which begins, Black Queen of Beauty, thou, thou hast, hast given, given color, color to, the, to world. the world. Among other women, thou art royal and the fairest. 
Black men worship at thy virginal shrine of truest love. When Africa stood at the head of the elder nations, the gods used to travel from foreign lands to look at thee. Garvey used the Negro world to promote a new aggressive image of black woman in many ways. Perhaps the best known was the creation of a special woman's page in the Negro world. That page opened up the newspaper to the voices of women uh, in, in, in many interesting ways. They began to talk about the role of the black woman in the family, in politics, in the arts, in history. At its peak, the UNIA counted thousands of women among its members. Many were drawn to an organization that offered opportunities denied them in the larger society. One of the reasons that the Garvey movement was so attractive to black women was because it provided a space where they could gain the respect of their peers. They could imagine themselves in different kinds of positions of leadership where they could be respected. Some organizations, um, for example, might make dark-skinned black women feel uncomfortable. But uh, women of every complexion, of every background, were embraced, particularly in the women's divisions. At every step of the way, women were extremely prominent in the UNIA, both in its councils as well as in its auxiliaries. It had an official women's auxiliary, and probably the most prominent auxiliary was the Black Cross nurses who symbolized the activism of women in the Garvey movement. The Black Cross Nurses, a women's auxiliary modeled on the Red Cross, was a highly respected unit of the UNIA. In addition to receiving training in first aid, Black Cross Nurses visited the sick, operated food banks and meal programs, and played a major role in recruiting young women to the Garvey movement. If one actually counts noses, probably two-thirds of the core of Garvey's supporters who did the envelopes, who passed out and circulated the, new, the, the Negro world, who actually built on the ground local institutions that reinforced and reached young people for Garvey were, were black women. And Garvey himself would have admitted this. In the early 1920s, before we had an FBI, we had a BI, a Bureau of Investigation. A young, ambitious, and unprincipled attorney named J. Edgar Hoover was hired in the BI, and one of his first assignments was to explore how to destroy the mass movement, revolutionary, pan-Africanist movement led by Marcus Garvey. J. Edgar Hoover learned the tactics of disruption, of surveillance, of the use of the law, and the breaking of the law to destroy a legitimate social protest movement. J. Edgar Hoover really got his start 
in the surveillance of black radicals. Hoover was the point man for monitoring and amassing an enormous file system. Among his very earliest cases was his pursuit of Marcus Garvey. J. Edgar Hoover had a particular thing in pursuing black leaders. It's partly psychological, it's partly social, it's also partly a reflection of Hoover's strange sense of morality. He felt that blacks had to be kept in check because if they weren't, they could contribute to the destabilizing of American morality. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. By the 1960s, Hoover's counterintelligence program had developed sophisticated infiltration and surveillance techniques, which were used against a wide range of organizations and leaders in the civil rights struggle. He started his campaign against black people with Marcus Garvey and extended all the way to Dr. Martin Luther King. Every black organization, such as the NAACP, the Urban League, uh, were under surveillance. When the party says power to the people, we ain't jiving a pound. We say power to the people. And when the people say... It's seen that we were gaining control uh, in certain ideological thinking because we had such leaders as Malcolm, we had Stokely Carmichael, we had Rap Brown, we had Angela Davis. They were getting mass coverage in the press. Their influence was carrying over to white youth. And this psychological influence, according to uh, J. Edgar Hoover, was dangerous. The FBI's counterintelligence program, known as COINTELPRO, would take a heavy toll on the black power movement. Particularly hard hit were the young members of the Black Panther Party. J. Edgar Hoover and the COINTELPRO uh, uh, operation had a, a very direct, uh, devastating impact on the Black Panther Party. In every chapter, there was at least, at least, at the very least, a serious informant. But most of the time, it was not only a, an informant, but also a provocateur, someone who would be in the group to agitate, to confuse. People on the East Coast were supposed to get letters from people on the West Coast and vice versa talking about each other and it ultimately caused a split within the Black Panther Party but they weren't sending the letters. The letters were coming from the FBI. I would say that Hoover's effect and his impact on African Americans and our attempt in our struggle for freedom has been extremely negative. He destroyed several black leaders. He destroyed and broke the back of numerous black movements. It was learning at the feet of Garvey 
that J. Edgar Hoover became the monster that he was, the one who destroyed civil rights and civil liberties using a state-sponsored terrorism that was also racist to destroy struggles for democracy by black people. We'll be taking a short break, listening to the song Black Man Redemption by Bob Marley and the Wailers. Garvey had a profound influence on the Harlem Renaissance, not in the way of the Harlem Renaissance writers joining the UNIA, but providing a kind of political backdrop to the, their understanding of the relationship between art, the imagination, and the politics of being black. Black artists like Langston Hughes or County Cullen and Gene Toomer, even if they had all kinds of criticisms or ridicule of the Garvey movement, Garvey pointed to the potential of linking a politics that espouses black self-determination and black freedom in the face of white repression. The UNIA had always used music, drama, and literary events to attract people. As the Harlem Renaissance flowered, Liberty Hall became an important venue for black artists. Many of the musicians who performed in Liberty Hall performed the musical programs at Liberty Hall went on to participate in various of the musical creations that became identified with the Harlem Renaissance.
Harlem Stride Piano became the kind of musical soundtrack of Liberty Hall and the Garvey movement. Fertile ground for artistic expression was also found in the pages of Garvey's highly successful weekly newspaper, The Negro World. In the pages of The Negro World, many of the early writers who would become identified with the Harlem Renaissance were first published. Garvey's Negro World has incredible writing, the power, the voice, uh, the diversity of, of the uh, newspaper is simply striking. And I think if Garvey did nothing else except to launch this vehicle of black analysis and opinion, his name would be known throughout black history for all time. The aggressive political stance of the Garvey movement came to be reflected in the art and literature of the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, one uh, theme that runs through the Harlem Renaissance is the idea of the new Negro. And the new Negro, in some ways, is a proclamation of black people's insistence on self-defense, on fighting back, um, fighting back against white racism, against imperialism. And much of the poetry and songs coming out of the Garvey movement really captured that theme. African-American artists began to use the black experience as the foundation of their creative expression. You can't help but read Claude McKay's If We Must Die, in, written in 1919 during the Red Summer, without understanding the context of that poem. The fact that hundreds of African-Americans were burned out of their homes, dozens lynched, murdered, some burned at the stake, burned alive in that summer that the Ku Klux Klan by 1919 had over a million white members across this country, that it had taken over state legislatures. If we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making them mock at our accursed lot. Like men will face the murderous cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. If We Must Die is a poem that says, basically, if, if I'm going to go out, you know, let me go out fighting back rather than um, on my knees. And that theme ran through the Harlem Renaissance, it ran through black nationalist politics up until this day. Garveyism articulated this idea that black people have arrived, that they're not going to apologize for anything, and that they're going to produce a culture that celebrates um, black history, black pride, and black beauty. Jakes, Marcus Garvey's second wife, played a major role in building and leading the UNIA. Her first encounter with Garvey signaled Jakes' dedication to her future husband's ideas. 
Well, my mother was born in um, Jamaica and, and grew up there um, and then migrated to the United States and went to one of my father's meetings in Harlem. And this would have been about 1919. Um, and um, after the meeting, um, she spoke to him, asked him questions and so on and so forth. He invited her to Liberty Hall to see the place and whatnot. And um, she saw, um, you might say, the mess that the organization files were in and so on, because they really didn't have um, good secretarial help. And uh, he appreciated her intelligence and her background. So he asked her to come to work for the organization, which she did. I think she alienated a number of the men in the hierarchy of the UNIA because of her independence and she had her own mouthpiece within the pages of the Negro world because Garvey gave her an entire page uh, called the woman's page to edit and she took um, that under her control and really made it an institution within the Negro world. She had a story for example about the first woman who swam across the English Channel um, and so her, her motivation was to show women that there were not limitations to the roles that they could perform. And this was kind of subversive intent on the part of her newspaper. There were great debates inside of Liberty Hall and great debates in the pages of the Negro world about the future stance of black women. Amy Jakes writes an incredible essay in the mid-twenties that lampoons and lambasts black men and tells them that they're going to have to get out of the way and that black women will lead the black revolution. We are tired of hearing Negro men say, there's a better day coming, while they do nothing to usher in the day. We are becoming so impatient that we are getting in the front ranks and serve notice to the world that we will brush aside the halting, cowardly Negro leaders Amy Jakes steps up and plays a very strategic role in the defense of Garvey from 1923 when he is tried on charges of mail fraud. For example, it is Amy Jakes who edits and compiles and publishes the first volume of the philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey. That book really is a landmark in the history of the Garvey movement. After Garvey's death in 1940, Amy Jakes Garvey worked tirelessly to promote his ideas until her own death in 1973. Amy Jakes's role in keeping Garvey's legacy alive was very significant. In the 1960s, with the rise of black consciousness, black power, black assertiveness, black is beautiful. People increasingly wanted information about Garvey. She became the major actor in disseminating information about Garvey and so was a really incredibly energetic resource and had a great uh, opinion about what she understood as the interpreter of Garvey and she made no bones about asserting her opinions. 
Marcus Garvey changed the thinking of the world. He changed the thinking of black men in the United States, that we are Africans. He taught that wherever Africans are is Africa. Marcus Garvey is a success. Men like Martin Luther King, uh, uh, Malcolm X, all of them took a page out of the UNIA. Well, one, you can't understand African-American politics, nor the politics of the African diaspora without the history of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, and particularly Marcus Garvey's ideas. In some ways, Garvey was the template for uh, black politics, whether you're talking about Jamaica and Haiti, for that matter, whether you're talking about the Rastafari movements in London, or if you're talking about organizations as distinct as, say, the NAACP, all black nationalist organizations, radical ones, conservative ones, draw somewhat from the Garvey legacy. His organization crumbled and his businesses collapsed. But Marcus Garvey's impact on the cultural, political, and spiritual life of black people would persist long after his death. One group that played a major role in preserving Garvey's legacy emerged in his native Jamaica in the 1930s. They are known today as Rastafarians. It's as if his legacy went underground. The Rastafarians are the people, more than anyone, I think, who kept alive his memory after 1940. Garvey's influence on the early Rastafari movement was very profound. The early Rastafarian prophets claimed that Garvey was the John the Baptist, heralding the coming of their great African king, Emperor Haile Selassie. And Marcus Garvey was the first man that made mention of Yeshua Selassie in this country. His Majesty Crown. 1930, 2nd of November. And Marcus Garvey made mention that from we early 20s. Marcus Garvey changed the world. It's especially black people. Kicking away black people out and minors and, and hiring from the white men and turn them to Africa. Marcus Garvey caused millions of people to turn their mind to Africa. Redemption songs. It's the Rastafarians who really made of Garvey a folk hero, a mythic hero um, of semi-literate, ordinary uh, people. And their contribution to the preservation of Garvey's legacy is, is immense. Bob Marley, in some ways, uh, in his redemption song and in, many of, in much of his music really did try to promote the key elements of Garvey's ideology even if it wasn't called that. Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Is all I ever Another group to inherit Garvey's legacy was the Nation of Islam, 
which was founded in the 1930s and thrived in the 1950s and 60s. Ideologically, there's a strong correlation between the Garvey movement and the Nation of Islam movement. That movement would take over many of the ideological themes of Garvey's African redemption, African fundamentalism philosophy, the idea of a nation for black people, a religion for black people, an economic base for black people. All of these themes were already laid out by Garvey. What Elijah Muhammad contributed was an Islamic orientation. I think Islam is one of the greatest religions of all time for our people in America. The so-called American Negro have to be completely re-educated. Garvey's philosophy of black self-reliance would find its greatest champion in a man whose parents were Garveyites, the nation of Islam's most charismatic leader, Malcolm X. in a vicious cycle of poverty, of ignorance, of apathy, of disease, and of death. And they have these old Uncle Tom Negro leaders coming to Harlem telling you and me that times are getting better. Your times will never get better until you make them better. If you look at some of the rhetoric of Malcolm X, it almost is the same as uh, Marcus Garvey. You look at the philosophy that Malcolm X followed, black nationalism, which he did not create, but he popularized it. That comes out of the Garvey movement. You know, when you're talking about doing for self, you know, building your own businesses, controlling your own community, uh, that God is of African descent or a black person. Malcolm's philosophy of black nationalism ties in perfectly with the philosophy of Marcus Garvey. It is not too exaggerated to say that without Garvey and Garveyism, there would have been no Malcolm X, because the foundation of Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, and Louis Farrakhan today is really Marcus Garvey. African leaders seeking an end to European colonial rule after World War II would use Garvey's ideas as guiding principles for their own struggles. Leaders such as Jomo Kenyatta of Kenya, Steve Biko of South Africa, and Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana would embrace Garvey's philosophy of black unity and self-sufficiency. Garvey left a legacy to Africans today of pride in being Africans of pride in African culture and African civilization, of pride in being black. That is a legacy that he left to Africans. Garvey had tremendous influence uh, in various parts of Africa, not only West Africa, which uh, many people point to, but also Southern Africa, Central Africa, East Africa. Uh, he was able to influence uh, many individuals and many movements uh, in these particular areas. Kwame Nkrumah probably uh, stands out as one of the most important because Nkrumah 
became the first president of uh, independent Ghana, which was formerly the Gold Coast. The philosoph philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey had a profound impact on, on um, Kwame Nkrumah. Kwame Nkrumah studied in the United States at the end of the 1920s and in the 1930s. And he read quite a lot. And he talked about all these different books that he read, including Marx and so on. But he said quite explicitly that the book that had the greatest impact upon him and his thinking was the philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey. The catchphrase, Black is Beautiful, popularized in the 1960s and 70s, had powerful roots in Garveyism. When we were growing up, we were not allowed to play with white dolls. We, were, we had to have black, black dolls. dolls. Mr. Garvey made sure that people made, he, they even used to make black dolls. So from then on, we learned, you learn from a child to love black. And that's one of the things Mr. Garvey taught. In the mid-60s, with the rise of black consciousness here in America, in particular black power and the aesthetic of black is beautiful, people realized that this was indeed the essential message of Garvey. It's as if in the 60s, Garvey's time had come. The study of things black became a maximum pursuit by many of us and Garvey was one of the major uh, people that we looked at because of the realization that he has touched so many of us whether we are from the Caribbean or from Africa or from the northern part of the United States or the southern part of the United States we realized that in our families we had people who were Garveyites. This was an organization of uplifting black people this was an organization that had a dream of a united Africa. This was an organization that had a dream of fighting white supremacy. By the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, um, even if the name Marcus Garvey drops out, the fact is that black nationalism, um, uh, all aspects of black nationalism, in some ways, is touched by Garvey's legacy. You know, the idea that, uh, of, of African redemption, the idea of black pride and pride in oneself, the idea of a revolution in the mind, that you have to change the way black people think in order to move forward to make any kind of revolution. That is the Garvey legacy. The African Express podcast is sponsored by the Northwestern Program of African Studies. You can listen to us for free on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, 
Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Pocket Cast, and other podcast platforms. Help us reach more people by sharing the podcast, telling people about us, and stay tuned. <laughs>